series called The Final Week, because it was the final week of Jesus' ministry here on earth, not the end of his ministry for sure, 
because even after the Easter experience, he appeared to some of the disciples. You heard about that last week on a road to Emmaus, um, how Jesus appeared and conveyed his story and his um, self to those who needed a personal appearance. I would like you to now turn to Exodus chapter 1. You'll find this on page 40. Now, we have not done a series on the Old Testament for quite a while. We went through a good portion of the book of Genesis, which of course leads up to Exodus, because if you look at the index, or if you're familiar with your Bible, you will notice Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's called the Pentateuch because there's five books there, part of the story of the calling of God, starting all the way from in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and all the way into the promised land and of the Israelites. And so there is a story there that has to do with God creating, calling out, and then creating something new with his people. Parallels of the Israelites and the church are obvious, should be obvious, and I think it's worth spending some time in the largest portion of the Bible, the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. The Jewish people do not call it the Old Testament because the Jewish people, the believing Jews, that is, do not recognize a New Testament. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, for the most part, Believing Jews, there are some who are simply secular Jews anyway, so it's not too relevant in that sense, but the believing Jews are waiting for the Messiah. And they might find value in the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, but they don't see it as part of their Bible because it isn't part of their Bible. The Torah uh, and, the, and the writings, the Psalms and the writings of the Old Testament make up the Bible of the Jewish people. So before we start into this, I want to give you a little introduction. Now, some of you find a very old hat. If you uh, uh, have been in church a long time, you understand what the Jewish, the, the role that the Jewish people played in God's work leading up to Jesus. Uh, but for the rest of you, or just a refresher, or if uh, you get any questions about this subject here, I've written a little article for you called Understanding the Jews in Israel. And this uh, we may be most um, used to focusing on prophecy as it relates to Israel. Uh, but I don't want to focus too much on that. I want to focus on the history. We'll talk about the prophecy that relates to Israel maybe some later on. But because in the book of Exodus, we're right there at the beginning of the Israelites' history as a nation. It's similar to the book of Acts in the New Testament, which is about the beginning of the church the followers of Jesus, the story of Jesus and all that he did up through the resurrection, uh, then led to a community of believers that carried on his work. And in the book of Genesis, you have creation, the calling of Abraham, the calling of Isaac, the calling of Jacob, the calling of Joseph, right up to there as individuals. And then it branches out into a community of believers. And that's very much parallel to the way the New Testament is laid out. Jesus calls the 12 disciples. And then the church kicks off in Exodus or in the book of Acts chapter 2 with what is called Pentecost. 
And, um, and that is the church as it spreads out through the world then becomes a community of believers and not focused on the foundational individuals. So if you'll just read with me here, I want to give this a background to this since we'll be spending some weeks in the book of Exodus. Understanding the Jews and Israel, this is on your insert here in the back of uh, what is the space for taking notes. Jew is a shortening of the name Judah, who was one of the twelve sons of Jacob and the one from whom Jesus descended, biologically that is. This was also the largest and leading tribe, Judah that is, especially after the northern ten tribes went into captivity to Assyria, in the 8th century BC. Judah became synonymous with Israel itself and so Jew became synonymous with Israelite. Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob in Genesis 32 verse 28 and 35 verse 10 after his struggle with God. This became the national name to set the Israelites apart from the descendants of Ishmael and Esau who were also descendants of Abraham biologically that is. Today, Israel is the national name of the country in the Middle East that exists in the promised land of the Bible that God repeatedly promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in those passages. Promised land or holy land is the geographical place in the Middle East that God first promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and subsequently affirmed to his descendants and finally brought them to in the great trip recorded in the Old Testament books of Exodus and Joshua. The promises came with specific land boundaries and language of forever yours. This land was first called Canaan, then Judea, and then after the Jewish revolt in 135 AD, the Roman government gave it the name Palestine. Judaism is a religious side of being Jewish. Many Jews to this day practice the Judaism as found in Exodus and Leviticus in the Bible. Yahweh, or uh, Jehovah as it's sometimes given is the same God we worship and the, Jewish and the Jewish Bible is the same as the 39 books that Christians call the Old Testament. Practice of Judaism is varied however there are Orthodox, Conservative, Hasidic, Liberal and non-practicing Jews. Judaism is both ethnic and religious in common usage of the term. Zionists are Jews who focus on the political and geographical state of Israel and were the political force behind the present nation of Israel from 1948 onward. While most Jews in history were waiting for the coming of the Messiah to restore the Holy Land, the Zionists, many of whom are not religious, took their mission as primarily political and military. Chosen people is a term refer referring to the fact that God chose the Israelites to represent him and his values to the world via demonstration and message both a blessing and a responsibility. So that's just some general background and there's much more to say about this and if those of you who have studied the Old Testament history know that there's a lot of other subjects and issues to deal with here. So let's go directly then to Exodus chapter 1, that's page 40 in your um, pew Bible if that's what you're using. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Now, this is the way historical books of that time and in the Bible always start. You notice in, uh, in the New Testament, even Jesus' story begins with his genealogy. In one case, it goes all the way back to Adam. In another case, it goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, and, and this is a sign that we're speaking historic document here. This is historical narrative. This is not a primarily a, um, a thesis-based discussion. It's not devotional primarily. It's his history. This is the way history is written. And particularly in a society where biological genealogy is important. And so he goes back and tells the story. Now it mentions that numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. That means there were 70 people, descendants of Abraham, who went to Egypt in the first place. And that's what became the issue that they're dealing with and why it's called the Exodus. Exodus, of course, means a going out. Going out. doesn't say where they're going in, uh, but a going out. Uh, an isogist is a going in, and an exodist is a going out, just to use the terms the way they were used and applied in this book. So the story is really about how the Israelites went out and what God did with them after they went out from the place that they had been living. In verse 6, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and with forced labor, and they built Pithom. Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah. Uh, I'm just going to say these names in an anglicized or English way. Uh, we won't worry about their pronunciations because all through Exodus you're going to find this issue of how do you say those Hebrew names. And, and uh, I think the best way to deal with that when you're reading the Bible is do not worry about it. Sometimes the most creative Bible reading I've ever heard is people who have no idea how you say Hebrew names. And it really gets interesting sometimes, and that's what is okay, because that's what the Bible is for. Not for ex experts, but for people who want to hear something from God. Verse 16, uh, let me go for 15, just back up one verse. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were uh, Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live, and then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, 
Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I love this answer. <laughs> it might be true. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's a good explanation um, that kind of um, makes it, takes them off the hook, possibly a little bit. And so verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, they gave them families of their own. He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. You know, in the midst of a story like this, which is fundamentally a positive story about deliverance, there's the tragedy of real life. And I think that's worth keeping in mind. As Christians, especially if we've been in the church a long time, we sort of, uh, we sort of um, sometimes even struggle for things to be grateful for and to be excited about. Uh, and there's so many people out there who are living in despair and in some cases danger and hopeless darkness. And all of these stories of deliverance, the ones that we find in the New Testament with Jesus, they contain this sort of background of darkness and despair. People who are desperate to be liberated from the bondage of their darkness and what is around them in the world. A couple of historical things that are worth pointing out here is that, um, it, that their circumstance changed. And uh, the reason that it probably is valuable for us to focus on our persecuted brothers and sisters in, around the world sometimes is because I think our circumstances are changing. You know what, we are accustomed, and I read this in Christian literature, and I hear this quite often, is that we should, we, we need to force our society back to its roots, to back when it was the good times, and when the focus was on God's values and God, and you know what, those days might be over. The question is, are we going to be able to adapt to the circumstances we find ourselves in? Joseph and the 70 that went with him, the 69 that went with him, were highly honored. The Pharaoh honored Joseph, made him number two guy. And then there's a reference here to somebody that doesn't even know the history anymore. Now look what they're doing to him. Now they're starting to oppress them, persecute them. The numbers that are reported later on have gotten large there's been a, a growth in the and in the prosperity it's been a prosperous place for them and a good place for them and they have grown and actually if you look at the promises God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 God actually said your descendants are going to live in captivity out of this land I'm giving you but I'm going to take them from there and put them back in Interesting element to the promise that God gave him. He even predicted that this was going to happen. 430 years worth of it is what took place. And that's why the history was gone of how honored they were by the Pharaoh. But God was blessing them anyway. Even though society and its structures were trying to destroy them, work against them, God was blessing them anyway. It's kind of like stomping out jello. Maybe you've heard that expression in regard to persecution of Christians around the world. There is a phenomenon in history 
a phenomenon in Christian history anyway, is that the more the society attempts to stomp out those who speak for Jesus, represent Jesus, carry the values of Jesus into society, into daily life, the more society attempts to stomp them out, the more they tend to grow and spread. Now, from a sociological point of view, this actually makes a certain amount of sense. I am a, a product of the 60s. I know some of you are too. Some of you were already, shall we say, middle-aged by the time the 60s rolled along. But the transformation of the 60s and the 70s in our society was kind of interesting. I have a vested interest in that whole discussion of the history of the 60s because Marjorie and I were part of that process and we took part in that. But what happened during that time was society changed. There was a turnover, a rollover. I think it was set up long before that. If you know your history, you know that nothing ever just happens in a 10-year decade. It was set up by the decades of the people who went before. Anybody who complains about what happened in the 60s should remember that it was the 50s and the 40s that prepared it, set it up, gave the value system. When we were teenagers and early 20s, my generation, we didn't have the power, the philosophy, the education, or the money to do any of the things that the 60s are known for. We were a product of something before. So this is all the way history works. And you find yourself in a certain place. That's what this story is about. This is where they are now. And they could have demanded, and this is what the Pharaoh was worried about, is that they're going to rise up in arms and they're going to take back their place of honor and respect. The Hebrew people in Egypt are going to eventually overwhelm, overwhelm us and take over our country, our society. And it generated some fear. This is not really the mission that God had in mind for the Israelites, and it's not the mission that he has in mind for the church either, the followers of Jesus, to be those in power, to be the power block, the controlling influence of a society. Our mission is to infiltrate, to be salt and light, to be part of the underpinnings, not the overpinnings, not the power structure, but the spiritual power structure. Why we're encouraged to pray for those in leadership positions and to bring light and truth, behavior into the mix, not to attempt to take it over. The story of the Jews relates to us as Christians in a powerful way because we have always been linked to this. Well, for one thing, our Bible is made up of their story, not just our story as Christians or as Gentiles, some Jews, but mostly Gentiles in a Christian community. Uh, that's, it's linked. There's just no way around it. We've always been linked to the Jewish people. And there's always been some reaction of the world around us, which Jesus called persecution, being linked to Jesus, but there was reaction to the Jewish people. I can't think of a people, an ethnic identity, in proportion that's been more persecuted, hounded, and ruthlessly killed than those people. And I'm not one of them. But I am one of one of them, Jesus, and so are you. The bottom line is there is a spiritual dimension here that cannot be explained sociologically or historically. 
if we really represent God, if they really represent God, there's going to be pushback. That's what God wanted them to know and wants us to know. If you really represent God, there's going to be pushback. Any of you in your daily life, whether speaking up in a college class or a high school class or on the job, you express your unwillingness to go along with something, you're going to get pushback. This is not the powers that be position on this. If we're genuine followers of Jesus, we're going to find that. That is a warning that Jesus gave and the Apostle Paul gave that there will be persecution. We don't need to seek it and you don't need to whine and complain about it. That's a problem that sometimes exists. People claim persecution when they've actually got it pretty easy. But to deny the possibility of persecution because of what we stand for, because of what they stood for, would be foolish because God actually anticipated this and gave warning of it. Let me focus a little bit, and I want to pick this part of the story up, the last part of the chapter, where the, um, the midwife took a stand. This is what we would uh, today call civil disobedience. Now, I don't know if this term gets near the press that it used to get, um, but uh, in referring to the 60s, that was a key phrase of the whole 60s, civil disobedience. We're just not going on. But this has happened before. Pacifists, for example, took a stand in generations past against war and said, well, we don't believe in war. We don't think war is God's way to handle business. And they took a stand, and many of them paid the price. And many of them uh, were told, you are weakening our society, so therefore you are now the enemy. World War II, for example, if you were a pacifist in Germany, your life expectancy was roughly two hours a bullet to the back of the head because you're the enemy. As soon as you declare yourself unwilling to participate in this project of extermination, you become one of the victims. And this is true of all societies that do not have a Christian background. Pacifism has always been considered a, uh, one of the legitimate expressions of Christian faith. It is not considered an expression of faith in any other society, never has been. Uh, it's dangerous to take that kind of stand, but Christians have taken that stand in our history and uh, even this church's history. But even today, if you take a stand on things like they did, civil disobedience and simply say, I refuse, interesting part of this story is that they creatively refused. They didn't just say, no. We are not subject to you, Pharaoh. We are subject to God, which is actually what was true. But that's not how they approached it. They found a creative way to get around this command to kill children. They found a creative way and then practiced it. And God honored them. God does honor those who take a stand in society for his values. So this is a setup for what is to come with the nation of Israel. That God has called them out, not just to be his chosen people, as in, you're going to heaven and the other people are not, or you're so special because you're Jews and you're not black, or you're not Dutch, or you're not German, or something like that, but because God had a plan for them. He was going to use them to represent him in the world. Now this is where there's a direct transference 
to what the church's calling and mission is. God has a plan for us as his chosen people. Not because you're so special or I'm so special, but we have a mission to accomplish, to represent God to the world and represent the world to God. That's why we pray for the country. We pray for the people around us. We represent them to God. We represent God to them by speaking and living out the values of God. That's exactly what God is setting up here in chapter 1 of this story of his people is what it's going to represent. And he's personalized it with these midwives. This is what the whole nation is going to end up doing, representing God to the world, showing his values while resisting the powers that be. Civil disobedience. They actually disobeyed the commands of the Pharaoh. And God honored them for it. Now, I think that can be easily abused. Well, you can say this about anything, can't you? That's, well, this is, it is not God's will that I pay taxes. Therefore, I'm going to keep all the money. It's not God's will that I do this or that. You can say that if you want, but there's nothing in the scripture that gives you that impression. But there are some things that are so morally clear that if you can't find a way to creatively not do it, then you find a way to buck up your courage and die for it. That's the story of these people's calling out of Egypt. As we go through this, you're going to find that these people occasionally grumbled about this. They said, let's go back to Egypt. It was so much nicer there. Nobody was bugging us, and we had all the food we wanted. Let's go back there. That's here. They needed the pressure to want to get out. But later on, the pressure of living as God's people made them want to go back where they started. Let me just say a couple of things here about factual things. These are called the books of Moses because, well, partly because this is the historic tradition for a couple of centuries. It's assumed that Moses was the human author of these books. And I don't know of any reason why that isn't. Uh, There are some people who see it in a different way, that it's a collective or redacted collection of history, which is sort of irrelevant. I think it's the books of Moses, partly because Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, over 70 references to Moses' writings, uh, would indicate this. So just just to get this point clear that... If, as we go through this, uh, it's about Moses, but Moses also appears to have been the author. You know, think about it this way. Moses had 39 years in the wilderness to write a big book if he wanted to. There was 39 years of just trucking around with nothing really to do except write a book. So why wouldn't he write a book? I think it's perfectly logical. Scholars are in disagreement about that, but the scholars are in disagreement about everything. If you actually know what scholarship is, you would get that point. But the other thing is the dating here. Because of the reference to Ramesses and the Pharisees, uh, I mean the, the Pharaoh, I think it's logical to see this all as something around 1400 or 1500 or 1300 before Christ. This... Uh, seems fairly logical. There's nothing in history that 
would challenge this, and the references that appear throughout this appear to date that. So just a few facts about this. Takeaways for life, challenges for us from the principles of God calling his people out of Egypt. Number one, God may be working with a different schedule than yours. Ha, huh. that's a good thing to keep in mind. 430 years? That's a long time. Now what if something you really value or been praying about doesn't happen even in your lifetime? Does that mean that God is not going to answer that prayer? Even in your lifetime. I know many cases where parents prayed for their children and nothing in their lifetime ever changed. But after they were gone, it still changed. Because God's time is different. 430 years they were in Egypt. It was a good place to park them for a while until they got nation status, uh, I guess. But nevertheless, I'm sure they thought, what's all this business of our promises from a to Abraham about land? We're not in this land. It's long gone. Well, and as Christians, we've uh, been centuries of dealing with Jesus said he's going to come back well where is he huh? I haven't noticed him anywhere hasn't come back so ah, come on your lifespan isn't very long compared to human history it's not very long compared to eternity it's not very long compared to God's perspective on time that's good to keep in mind because this story reminds us of that all those over 400 years where this promise was still there just wasn't ready Maybe there's something in your life that God will do and he's not refusing to answer your prayer. Maybe the timing isn't right yet for it. Number two, oppression can be effective for opening eyes to bigger truths, but not the only way. I know that sometimes we feel like if we start praying for somebody, God is going to really kick them hard so he can get their attention. Sometimes God just blesses them and they start thinking, wow, God must be good. I might be interested in God. There's lots of ways that God can get people's attention. But don't let us forget that oppression is sometimes the way that people start thinking about what eternal values are. Unfortunately, I think it's actually more common that way. That until we really get at the bottom, if you are at all familiar with the 12 steps of AA or other organizations, you probably have heard the expression, you haven't reached bottom yet. Meaning, you haven't suffered enough yet. You've got to get so low that the only place to look is up. I like these expressions because I think sometimes that's true. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, if you're smart... You won't make God do that to you. But God is perfectly willing to see the eternal perspective while you might be thinking only of the temporal perspective. Oppression can be an effective way. As far as spiritual revival, it rarely comes during prosperous times in countries, in economies. Spiritual revivals and revivals of Value systems frequently come during times of economic hard times or uh, threats and fears from outside. Number three, there is a time to speak and act with civil disobedience. We talked about that with the midwives and their role. And um, we'll talk about that some next week as how this, this uh, very principle and this very practice of theirs engaged 
the character of Moses. Uh, there's a time to speak and act with civil disobedience, meaning we don't have to do what we're told in every case. Uh, I don't know, this is difficult sometimes when you're dealing with children. Well, you've got to be obedient. Uh, wait a minute. What if some authority tells you to do something that you know is really wrong? This is the problem that has gone on in some Christian contexts. Uh, missionary boarding schools, for example, have had a huge problem with this. The Catholic priests, even public school teachers. You obey. Even if I tell you to do something for me that is clearly perverted. You obey because God said obey. I hope you're not teaching your children that. To obey everything. There are things in which it's clearly against God's will to do some things. Or even cooperate with some things. Price might be high for taking that stand. But it's a real issue in terms of our relationship with God. Number four, with God and his word as our guide, we have our North Star. This is referring to their looking to God for their deliverance, number one, the nation itself, the nation of Israel, the people, the group, and then also those individuals in their stand. Look to God, we will know what we need to do, when to say yes and when to say no. And number five, God sees and honors our obedience to him in unexpected ways. Going back to there, God gave them families. This was not the natural role of those people. They were dedicated uh, to remaining single and serving in this way. But God gave them families as a blessing, as a reminder that if you serve me, I will bless you. Maybe in unexpected ways, but that's the blessing, reminder, the promise yet. So you see the principles that we see with the Israelites are principles that we live with in following God and serving God. And those are the things we take from this. And as we go through the book of Exodus, we'll be looking for God, his character, how he relates to his people, and how life and community works. Father, we are grateful that we have a true North Star. We have something higher than ourselves and even society to look to for guidance. Show us your will for our lives. Show us how we can take a stand when we need to. And show us, give us the wisdom to know when to do that. But also, Lord, we are reminded that you have eyes. Even though sometimes it seems that you don't see what's happening to us, we get discouraged, we give up. We know that you see. But your timing and your ways sometimes don't match what we would like. So, Lord, whatever is in our lives right now that needs change, we trust you to do it. We give it to you. Whatever is in our lives right now that is depressing or dark, we give to you. We just want to be faithful servants. We want to bloom where we're planted. But we want you to work in our lives and we trust you to take care of the big picture. In Jesus' name, amen.